Good morning. My name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here, um, and I've actually I'm actually glad to be here uh, to have made it here. The last 12 hours have been sort of interesting for our family. Um, if you don't uh, know our family, we have three kids, and our youngest at around six o'clock last night just started emptying the contents of his stomach every 20 minutes for the next three hours, and you could set a clock by it. It was kind of amazing. Um, but not amazing. Uh, so it's been interesting. And yeah, so I'm glad to be here now and that that is in the past. Um, yeah, and so today we're starting our series in Advent. And I'm really excited. I've actually never preached um, during Advent before. I mean, if you're not familiar what Advent is all about, it's just a liturgical word for an arrival or an appearing um, where the church every year, it sets time apart Um, to look backward at Jesus appearing um, when he came to inaugurate his kingdom. The eternal Christ, who existed from eternity past, stepped down, wrapped himself in flesh, entered human history. Um, And he lived his life as a true son of his father, um, in every sense of the word, looking just like him and showing us what God is like. And then he suffered to atone for the sin and brokenness of humanity, rising in triumph, ultimately, over death, giving, giving us an entirely new life, uh, ascending to be our advocate um, with the, beside the Father, and sending His Spirit as a guarantee of our redemption. And we also, at the same time, we look forward to Him reappearing to consummate His kingdom, when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, to bring the new heavens and the new earth, um, to wipe every tear from every eye, um, when we will finally and fully live under the light of Jesus' face forever. And so the church has historically celebrated the season through four specific things that we celebrate the coming of. Those things are hope, peace, love, and joy. So this morning, um, I have the privilege of meditating on you guys with hope and what that idea means for us today. And so as I was thinking about hope in general, the story came to mind that I read a while back. The story is about... uh, a guy named Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary to India for most of his career, um, from 1947 to 1974. And eventually, uh, he became the bishop of the Church of South India. Um, Later, he returned to the UK for a writing career where he taught at uh, universities. And he, um, he began linking what he had seen in his early career to what he was seeing playing out in the Western context in his, his home. Um, And what he was seeing was there were these similarities between the pluralistic Hindu culture that he had just been in and what he was now seeing in his uh, his home country of the United Kingdom. And so in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, he shares the story. Um, When he was initially moving to India, he had to learn the language and learn all the customs. And he noticed, surprisingly, that there was no word, there was no Hindu, the language he was learning was the Tamil language. And he noticed there was no word for the English word of hope. And so he asked, he asked his Hindu teacher, what, what is this about? Is there some other concept that, that you guys would use instead of hope? And his teacher gave him a very interesting response. He said, what do you mean by hope? Does hope mean anything? Things will be what they will be. I may wish that they would turn out better than likely, but why should I wish to be deceived by my desires? And I think Newbigin's teacher was accurate in his observation, at least accurate in his observation of how oftentimes we interact with the concept of hope. 
See, hope in our culture is sometimes just that, uh, not much more than willful self-deception. And a wish to be deceived by something better, something that could possibly be better than what we're currently experiencing. Um, And a vision for a worthwhile future is often elusive or hard to pin down or figure out where it's really coming from. Um, See, our hope floats from election to election, from one technological development to another, from one economy with its challenges to another economy with its different challenges, um, and from one social movement to another social movement, even from job to job as we struggle to keep our own individual lives afloat. Um, And it never finds rest, never finds a place to take root um, in that frame. Um, And this is relevant um, to my life for the past few weeks. Some of you know that uh, my work is uh, project-based, where I come to the end of a project and I'm looking for what that next project will be. And every now and then there'll be a a lull where there's some uncertainty or more uncertainty there than, uh, than I'm used to. And this happens to be one of those seasons, as Robin shared, um, about a month ago at the last Celebration Sunday. And yeah, so I thought I had come to terms with that and um, had been processing it with my DNA group, as Josh just plugged for us. And, <laughs> and I had lined up a possibility of temp work because I have a two-month period before I'll start back at um, Sony, where I usually am working most of the time. And then Friday night, I get an email from that temp job that, oh, just kidding, we don't need you for at least two weeks. We'll let you know two weeks from now if that changes. And all of a sudden, like all of the somewhat stability I'd cobbled for myself, where I thought I wasn't banking on it, um, suddenly there's instability where there wasn't before. And there's the fear of hopelessness where there wasn't before. And then the throw-ups happen yesterday, and then I get a summons for jury duty, and one thing after another, and then just daily life with challenging life, uh, raising three human beings that don't want to live as human beings were meant to live. The same way I don't want to live as human beings are meant to live. Um, Yeah, and so I think at this point, all of those better than likely scenarios that I might be um, tempted to seduce myself or deceive myself into believing, they're kind of gone. So so this is timely for me. Hopefully it's timely for you as well. Um, But why do we have that inherent desire for something better? Why don't we just accept what is and look at our life and say, it is what it is, I'll put my head down and keep going. Like, why is there this innate desire within us that says, things should be better than this. Like, it shouldn't, be, it shouldn't have to be so hard. And uh, f- there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor who's uh, done some groundbreaking work where he actually saw, he looked at culture and saw how in years past we would say, that desire for something better, it's rooted in the transcendent belief that we have a creator, we have a redeemer who entered human history to restore us and to um, reveal his love for us. But as as we've seen that recede as the main cultural narrative, modern society has come up with its own replacements for that transcendent hope. In his, his book, A Secular Age, he reinforces this idea that every human 
has this sense that somewhere out there is something better. A richness or a fullness we long for is how he describes it. And it's this driving force that's actually so deep within us, it's not easily uprooted. It's kind of there, and we have to cope with it one way or another. And he observed two replacements, at least, um, once we've removed the transcendent as a source of that hope of the, the fullness or richness or something better. And the first, he says, is to take what we're doing in our normal everyday life now, whether it be your job, raising a family, um, yeah, just whatever the, the contents of your life happen to be. And we look at those things and we find the inherent meaning and moral good in them and we say, that's my transcendence, that's my hope. I know that if I'm doing a jo- good job at these things from day to day, that, that my life is whole and secured and I'm, a, I'm okay. And the second, he said, is we, we look beyond our normal scope of life and we say, just beyond my normal everyday life, is a more remarkable, fantastic life that I can pursue. So some people take that and they say, I'm going to go and serve in an aid organization overseas and help people. Some people do foster care here, which is a much-needed expression of um, how we live our life out. Um, Or we do adoption or uh, social justice missions, all of these things where we add these things to our life to, um, to give us hope and to be a part of something bigger. And that living a remarkable life itself now becomes a sacred thing. It becomes a sacred space. And uh, please don't mishear me this morning. I'm not casting shade on any of those things of saying they're not valuable. Um, These are amazing things that we could and should join God in doing as his life plays out in the world today. Um, And that is a part of the new life that we're called into. But they're insufficient sources of hope. We can't bank our heart's desires on them. We can't um, look to them when we're suffering. They're expressions of a hope, not a source of hope. And so Taylor identifies this way of locating our, our source of hope as what he calls horizontal transcendence, where we take natural everyday activity or even somewhat remarkable and supernatural activity like bringing a, a child into our home for foster care, and we make it a supernatural hope that we try to draw daily um, power and, and sustainability from. And we have religious expressions of this too within the church. Um, this is not a purely um, non-church thing to do. Um, have you ever found your sense of hope rising or falling with how your MC is doing, how well the mission is going, how connected you are as a family with the people in your MC, how well you're serving maybe, Maybe it's how your spiritual practices are going, and when you feel distant from God, suddenly your hope goes out the window. Um, and so we have to ask, are these methodologies, are they, are they sufficient to sustain our hope? When death and disease and decay threaten to vanquish hope, um, and is this the best we can do, this wishful self-deception um, where we then... Um, try to pursue this something better out there, possibly by a, a different source of hope, um, is that sufficient? And I'll concede that, that Christians do this as much as anybody else. We, we take the hope of the gospel, uh, we force it into the natural world, um, and we make it this, yeah, this package deal that we can somehow check a box and know whether or not our hope is still secure.
See, this is uh, the same thing as what Paul talks about when he talks about hope for this life only. Um, But is that what we're celebrating this morning? Is that conception of hope what we're celebrating? Um, See, I think Peter offers us an entirely different view. Um, If you'll read with me this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer, tri- you suffer grief and various trials. So the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. Father, I pray uh, that as we dig into your word this morning, uh, that you would bring hope uh, where there was none before. That you would uh, shine the light of your gospel in our hearts. um, That the dawn of hope, um, that your morning star would rise in our hearts this morning. That you would illuminate the dark places, the hopeless places. Uh, The places where we're maybe um, cobbling together our own sources of hope. um, The places where we're deceiving ourselves and not uh, engaging you as a source of our hope. I pray that you would do that work, Holy Spirit, in our hearts um, to bring these things to remembrance and to to reestablish yourself um, as the ruler and Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So what is different about that picture of hope than what we were talking about before? There are a few things that I want to draw out this morning. The first is that it's different in its nature. And verse 3 starts out saying, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, the strange thing about the nature of Christian hope is that it's living. And there are two specific implications of it being living. One is that of its source, and two is that of its timing. And so the source of this living hope is not a philosophy, it's not a practice you're going to add to your life, it's not that pursuit of a desired better than likely outcome that you're going to deceive yourself into believing, and it's not even a remarkable life life lived, no matter how remarkable you choose to make it. Peter traces the source of that living hope directly to Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead, as if to say, if Jesus isn't living now, then neither is our hope. But because he rose from death, our ever-living hope is now secure in him. And it's secure not based even on our acceptance of that hope, not even on the, t- the time that that becomes, um, you become aware of that or that that becomes uh, attractive to you. It became secure at the moment that breath filled his lungs, his heart started pumping, and he rolled the stone away. And so this is remarkable, especially considering who Peter's writing to. See, in the Greco-Roman world, the prevalent philosophy had concluded the despair of this life is followed only by the unending night of death. And they rightly concluded that the primary impediment to existential hope in the present and lasting hope in the future would be the finality that death seems to bring. 
And this fatalism is true in our culture as well. No matter how we distract ourselves or try to deceive ourselves with other sources of hope. And maybe you, like me, have heard coworkers half jokingly, half taking themselves seriously, sort of impose or propose this idea that maybe it's no longer just to have children in this world. Maybe the world has become so dark that we should just realize that we'd be doing them a favor by never, never walking down that road. Um, I think that's a, a constant uh, theme in the background as we look out at the darkness that we're confronted with sometimes. Um, and even our horizontal transcendence projects can be plagued by that dread of death that they can't overcome. Even the, the, the most remarkable best life lived ultimately has the same conclusion. Um, and against that backdrop, Peter heralds that our hope is living because Jesus is alive and death is overturned. And so what was final is no longer final. What was the final um, authority, what, what once was the final verdict has been overturned. Um, and second, the second thing, implication of it being living, um, is that it's distinct in its timing. This hope is living now because Jesus Christ has already risen and it lasts into the future because he lives forevermore. The timing of that hope is neither past, present, nor future. It's ever-present. And we conceive hope only in relation... If we conceive hope only in relation to Jesus' future return, we, we end up missing a, ma- a massive piece of this. And that's not what we see here at all. So what we see here is Peter saying that the moment Jesus rose, hope entered a hopeless world. And this may, for some of you, seem like theological weeds. Like we can say, like, Jesus is our hope. Why do we have to pinpoint it on the resurrection, the incarnation, the ascension, his future return? Why does that really matter? Jesus himself is our hope. But I think it does have massive implications because uh, if you, like me, have ever sat with grieving friends, you may have heard similar things. Um, insistence that life is bleak and death will reign until Jesus returns, that we have no hope now until Jesus returns, that it's just going to be what it is, it is what it is until Jesus returns. But that's not what, Paul, what Peter's saying at all, not even close. He's saying because Jesus rose from death, you have hope now and you have hope forever. Because Jesus rose, you have hope now, and you have hope forever. Thanks, Jess. So the second way that living hope um, is different from this horizontal transcendence is what it comes with. He goes on in verse 4, Not only are we birthed into living hope, but also into inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So alongside of that living hope, you're birthed into an inheritance. And this may be a loaded word for our, our context. We often associate inheritances with wealth or privilege or, you know, if I ever get an inheritance, maybe I'll finally be able to buy a house in L.A., you know, whatever it may be. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's <how it> is. <laughs> but, but the emphasis here is slightly different. It, it includes that, but it's more. It's, uh, it's Peter, who Peter's writing to is the exiles. It's the, the diaspora of Christians in Asia Minor, who many of them were 
The same Christians who were there at Pentecost when Peter preached that sermon, the Holy Spirit fell, they, they spoke in tongues, and they were sent out to their various lands to preach the gospel. And these are those same people who have now been displaced by Roman colonization, by a number of different things, um, possibly cut off um, by the beginnings of persecution from their families and social structures. And they've been alienated possibly completely from the inheritance that would have been theirs and their family of origin. And so it's this overall loss of security that he's speaking directly to, um, which maybe you can relate to um, being out in L.A. I don't, I don't know um, how you got here, what your um, family past is, but maybe there is some of, that, um, some of that question mark around the idea of security and where it will come from, where it will be. Um, and in that frame, what better news is there than a guaranteed inheritance that cannot be taken away? And he unpacks this inheritance as imperishable because death and decay cannot touch it. Undefiled because nothing we or anyone else does can stain or ruin it. Nothing we do can make us unworthy of receiving it. Unfading because it will never slip away from us. Time cannot touch it. See, friends, don't we long for that kind of security? For freedom from death, ruin, and loss? That's what accomplishes our living hope. That's what accompanies it. Does horizontal transcendence come with anything close as a guarantee? No, it cannot. And finally, living hope is distinguished by where it leads us and how it sustains us. He goes on in verse 5, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The faith which manifests in us trusting Jesus because of his resurrection is actually God's power actively guarding you to salvation. It's not something that you're able to hold on to day by day. It's God's power at work within you. This power enables rejoicing. This power manifests as living hope. Hope that overrules grief. Hope that refines, proves, preserves, and sustains us through the fires of life, whatever they may be. Um, Hope that reveals trials as momentary by the sheer weight and longevity it affects on your soul. It's transformative in every way. If you remember our original dilemma, it was, can this self-deceptive hope and these projects of horizontal transcendence, can they actually sustain us? Can they actually bring us through those fires of life? Can they guard our hearts? Can they guard our souls to salvation? Can they save us in any function of the word in the present or in the future? Do they have the resources to handle grief and suffering? Where do they lead? What do they ultimately result in? We would have to agree with the Greeks that that despair in life is followed only by an unending unending night of death in that frame. Or to quote Sophocles even more poignantly and somewhat harshly, that it is best not to be born at all and second best to die at birth. And I think that's what our coworkers are getting at with those sort of jokes of black comedy of 
the injustice of having kids in this world. They're tapping into that finality of death that if we look at the world around us, we can't figure out how to overcome. But what does secured living hope result in? Living hope results in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, See, praise, glory, and honor because like we like to sing this time of year, best Christmas song ever, in case you guys were wondering. You can fight me if you want, but... uh, One of my favorite Christmas songs says it this way, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. See, when Jesus appeared, we felt our our worth to God. Um, There was a quote, uh, uh, Eugene Peterson died a few weeks ago, and there's this quote from his funeral in the eulogy his son gave that was so amazing where he said, My dad said every sermon he ever preached had the same final point Um, and it was he whispered it in my ear when I was falling asleep at night he told it to me over and over again throughout the years and it was this it was God loves you he is for you he is coming after you he is relentless see in a world starved for a sense of worth maybe you've seen the posters plastered all over the walls walking down the street Um, There was literally a sign shop that I happened to be walking by the other day that had signs in the window for sale saying, you are enough. And everything within me wants to run around and scribble because of Jesus, you are enough on all of those. So that someone somewhere might find a source for hope. So that someone somewhere might find something that could overrule the death playing out in their souls. Um, So yeah, his final appearing that worth that we felt at his initial appearing is fully revealed. Or as it says in Colossians, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That praise, glory, and honor is his, and his praise and glory and honor is ours. And this living hope results in rejoicing. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And to quote Edmund Clowney, that grace that already fills Christians with joy will be brought to them fully at the the appearing of Jesus Christ. The Lord whom they love but have not seen, they will see and adore, knowing well the doom and darkness from which they were delivered. The new people of God sing forth his praises. But how do we tap into that living hope? How do we engage it on a daily basis? How does that become true in our hearts, true for us, the way that it is objectively true? If you remember how the passage started out, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are given new birth into it. Um, This is an entire new life. Um, Some people say that this passage is a summing up of what Paul and Peter meant by new life every time that they talked about it. This idea of living hope and inheritance encompasses our new life. And see, this passage is interesting because it identifies God as Father because of this new birth. 
Creating him makes creating us makes him our creator, but giving us new birth makes him our father. And as J.I. Packer put it, Father is the Christian name for God. No one else would dare to call God Father. And we actually don't tap into it ourselves. We must receive it. See, living hope comes only by His mercy. It's not a hope we can manufacture or wish into being. It's not an inheritance we can merit. It's offered freely on the basis of His great mercy. Will we unclench our fists this morning? Will we unhinge our hope? from those projects of horizontal transcendence. Will we receive new life today by His mercy, not by our efforts? Will we anchor our life to His living hope that goes beyond the frame of death that seems to defeat all other hopes? Will you trust Him for an inheritance and security that is everlasting? Will you let Him guard you through the fires of life with faith that actually unlocks inexpressible joy and enables truly transcendent living. I'll end with this last quote from Newbegin. He says, One of the marks of a biblical counterculture will be a confident hope that makes hopeful action possible even in situations which are, humanly speaking, hopeless, like foster care, like um, aid organizations where you're trying to save marginalized and displaced peoples who have lost everything. See, that hope is reliable because the crucified Lord of history has risen from the dead and will come in glory. Because as we remember this time of year, a thrill of hope, add a thrill of hope, our weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope that you have given us, that you haven't left us with wise sayings or good philosophies or hopeful practices to convince ourselves that things are getting better, even ways to engage the world to make things better ourselves. Lord, you've given us a moment in history in which the one thing we could point to to kill all hopes was overturned. Lord, you overcame death. You walked out of the grave and you, you gave us new life in that moment, now and forevermore. And I pray, Jesus, that we would engage you as the living Lord of history, um, who was crucified, who was raised, and who is coming again in glory. I pray that you inhabit our praises right now, that if anything that I just said um, was pricking at our hearts or trying to go deeper, that you would do that work, Holy Spirit, um, that you would walk us through the, re- the rooms of our heart um, with Jesus now, um, that you would bring healing, that you would bring hope, um, that you would bring, bring freedom from the things, um, the false sources that are failing us daily, the ways that we're deceiving ourselves to get out of bed in the morning, and that you would give us real, true, lasting hope that goes beyond the frame of death, um, just as you did. Um, thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.